This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'd like to begin by acknowledging and appreciating the talk that you just heard, which really emphasizes that animals and humans can get the same diseases, and yet physicians and veterinarians rarely consult with one another, and that human and non-human animal commonalities can be used to diagnose, treat, and heal patients of all species. And I also would like to acknowledge uh, that this comes, as Barbara pointed out, from a long lineage that goes back to Osla, and one of those steps along the way was one of our own here, Kurt Banushka, who unfortunately couldn't be here because of an illness, the founding director of Cress and professor of pathology here, who really emphasized one medicine. So I'd like to flip the coin around. In science, there's always two sides to every coin and say, are there human-specific diseases? So what we've been hearing about is the evolutionary biology and diseases of a large variety of animals, mostly warm-blooded social animals, vertebrates, and you can see an entire lineage here. Let's zoom in on the group that we belong to, primates, and zoom in further. And among these primates, we have new world monkeys, old world monkeys, gibbons, various so-called great apes, and then us humans. If we zoom in further here, we can see that uh, we shared common ancestors with orangutans, gorillas, chimpanzees, bonobos, in a, just a very short time ago in evolutionary time. And here's another way to look at it. In millions of years before present, there's certainly some uh, discussion about the time frame. But a very important point to make here is that while we classified all these species as great apes, the mean difference between chimpanzees and bonobos uh, is less than 1% of the amino acid sequence level. In fact, we are closer to bonobos and chimpanzees than they are to gorillas. In fact, we are closer to chimpanzees than mice and rats are to each other. So really, the classification should be like this. We are hominids, and then among the hominids, the lineage leading to us are hominins. So... If you have a species that's 99% identical to us, the protein level, how could you possibly have anything that's different between them? And in fact, when I first got in this field, I found out that the veterinarians at the primate centers I went to were using Harrison's textbook of internal medicine, the same textbook I'd used. So that made sense. But if you want to say there's such a thing as a human-specific disease, it's got to be very common in humans rarely reported in closely related species. Now, this is very important. I'm zooming in on this clade, not about things that happen at distant portions of evolution, even in captivity, and could not be experimentally reproduced in such species. And I should warn you, I'm going to talk about a few really horrible experiments that were done a long time ago that will never be done again. So there's a caveat. Who do you compare with? In my opinion, reliable information is limited to data on a few thousand great apes in captivity which were cared for at NIH-funded facilities with full veterinary care, probably better medical care than most Americans get, and full necropsies. So this is a reasonable data set to compare with humans. I think comparing with wild chimpanzees and self-domesticated humans isn't that useful uh, in this question that we're trying to ask. So when I went to the Yerkes Primate Center and other centers and asked and said, what's the commonest cause of death in captive adult chimpanzees? They said, heart disease, heart attacks, heart failure. So I said, oh, it's the same thing. 
But then my wife, Nisi Varki, who's a pathologist, went to see what was going on. She came back and said, you fool, it's mostly a different disease. And so we got together with various experts across, including Kurt, and wrote this article that says, heart disease is common in humans and chimpanzees, but is mostly caused by different pathological processes. So in comparing these two species, amazingly it turns out that while we humans, essentially all of our heart attacks are due to what you heard about, atherosclerotic coronary blockade in the arteries, chimpanzees do get atherosclerosis, but it rarely ever leads to coronary thrombosis. Instead, they get this very peculiar kind of scarring in the, in the, in the myocardium, in the heart muscle, fibrosis, so-called interstitial myocardial fibrosis in great apes. This gives rise to abnormal rhythms, heart failure, and heart attacks. So it looks like humans, but at autopsy, it's a di- different disease. In fact, since we wrote this article and others put this out, it's become so well recognized that interstitial myocardial fibrosis is such a major common in captive great apes in all the zoos that all the zoos led by uh, Zoo Atlanta have gotten together and formed a network to figure out what is this disease and why is it killing all our great apes. And so there are two mysteries to be solved. One is, why do we humans not often get this fibrotic heart disease that's so common in closest evolutionary cousins? Conversely, Why do great apes not often get the kind of heart disease we get that's so common in humans? Since we're genetically so similar, there must be a very limited number of reasons. You'd immediately say, oh, it's just cholesterol. In fact, cholesterol is the leading uh, thing that pushes atherosclerotic heart disease. But look at this figure here, and look at above is the black line. Chimpanzee levels of cholesterol, even at birth and soon after birth in the first decade, are so high that they should be on statins. And they have similar HDL levels. They have the APOE4 ancestral allele, higher LPA levels, sedentary lifestyles, hypertension, and so on. Now, to be fair, there there are some amino acid differences in those two very important proteins, and that may be part of the story. So based on this kind of work, Nisi Varki and I went to, to several of these primate centers and tried to learn more about these biomedical differences. In this case, we're focusing on differences. I want to be clear, there are many similarities, which I'm not going to talk about. And so we, of course, work on sialic acid biology. That's another story for another day, but this article also talks about those differences. So here's a list of candidates for human-specific diseases that I call definite, meaning the data so far suggests that. Long list, obviously I'm not going to go through the whole list. I'll give you a few examples. The big one, of course, that I mentioned is this remarkable difference in the rates of coronary thrombosis versus interstitial myocardial fibrosis. In fact, spontaneous coronary thrombosis atherosclerosis seems to be very rare in other animals in the absence of experimental genetic or dietary manipulations. And the human-specific mechanisms, undoubtedly, as mentioned, have to do partly with behavioral and dietary changes, although I'm looking forward to the talk from Mike Gerwin on this hunter-gatherer heart disease. These amino acid changes in these two proteins, and something I'm not going to go into, a genetic change in uh, sialic acids that seems to have made our immune cells much more prone to inflammation and also contributes to the effects of red meat and heart attacks. But that's, of course, a specialized case. Here's another disease, malignant malaria, the big killer malaria. Horrible, horrible studies done in the 1920s and 1940s in the Belgian Congo. Two-way cross-transfusions between chimpanzees and humans infected or non-infected with malaria. No evidence of cross-infection. Turned out the parasites looked the same but are different. 
Fast forward almost a century and work by Carter member Francisco Ayala and others showed that all the falciparum in the world, this killer malaria, belongs to a very small clade in the midst of many, many, many other ape malarias. In fact, Barbara Hahn later showed that paraplasma in falciparum probably arose by a single transfer from one gorilla to a human. Sometime, we don't know exactly when, a few tens of thousands of years ago. So Pascal Gagneau have summarized it like this. Ape malarias are very common, and because of the sialic acid change I'm not going to go into, we escaped uh, uh, the target, and we had a free ride for a million years or so, but the parasites always win in the end. And finally, the parasite in that one transfer switched to bind the human kind of sialic acid, and then, of course, we spread the mosquitoes and our environment, and that the rest is history. Here's another one, typhoid fever, big killer throughout human history until very recently. And uh, it turns out there's been a host adaptation to humans. Again, most horrible studies done in the 1960s, large doses of salmonella typhi were given to, to chimpanzees. Uh, survival was much better, and they were much less sensitive. Turns out we found an explanation for this. There's a human kind of sialic acid shown on this side of the screen, and the other side of the screen, GC, is the chimpanzee type of sialic acid. And the typhoid toxin only binds to the human kind of sialic acid. And so using mouse models, we can sort of show that this is what's going on, that you have the sensitivity and resistance. Cholera. Robert Koch, the famous microbiologist, said, although these experiments are constantly repeated with material from fresh cholera cases, our mice remained healthy. We then made experiments on monkeys, cats, poultry, dogs, and other animals, and we never were able to arrive at anything similar to a cholera process. So far, there's no, nothing except a baby rabbit model. Of course, there's an explanation for this. Now, I've been talking mostly about infectious disease from Jared Diamond and others, and if you look in the bottom of the screen, you can see that certain diseases like rabies can spread throughout many animals. And then eventually, a disease makes its way into humans, and by what's called the red queen effect, becomes highly specialized on one species. And so some of this is not surprising, but the fact is there are such diseases. So there's one set of different definite diseases, though, that are kind of interesting. These are gonorrhea, various uh, other organisms that infect newborns, where it appears that what these bacteria have done is invent the human kind of sialic acid and coat themselves in what my colleague Victor Nizet calls uh, molecular mimicry. They're basically wolves in sheep's clothing, and they're very successful pathogens. Okay, so that's some examples. I haven't gone through all of them of human-specific diseases that seem to be human-specific. What about probable ones? Alzheimer's disease. Another Carter member, Tuck Finch, has written this commentary. Is Alzheimer's disease uniquely human? That Alzheimer's disease may be a human-specific disease was hypothesized in 1989. Apes accumulate considerably more amyloid plaques after 40, an age at which these are uncommon in humans. Despite this early plaque buildup, ape brains have not shown dystrophic neurites near plaques. Aging great ape brains also have few tangles. We cautiously, cautiously support this hypothesis, and this is under further investigation. Carcinomas of epithelial origin. To date, of these few thousand apes cared for in captivity, not a single case of carcinoma of esophagus, lung, stomach, pancreas, colon, uterus, ovary, or prostate. And so Nissi and I looked into this and concluded that while relative carcinoma risk is a likely difference between humans and chimpanzees and other apes, 
a more systematic survey is needed. Of course, age is a factor, not just environment. And so you'd say, well, a lot of these diseases we've been mentioning have to do with age. But in fact, chimpanzees in captivity can live up to the age of 45, 50, occasionally even up to 60. And so they are in an age range, you're looking at the rates of human cancer here in human males and females, where you might expect to at least see a few carcinomas, a few heart attacks of the human kind, and a few early cases of Alzheimer's-like disease, but none have been seen. Possible examples. Another long list. And here we have what is called absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. We really don't know. Uh, but it's kind of interesting that bronchial asthma, uh, I've been looking for a case of bronchial asthma in a great ape, or for that matter, in a monkey. And this is, there's no papers about this, except there are papers like this. Here's a paper about the asthma-like syndrome in a single monkey that says, the present case is remarkable in that there's a paucity of reports of naturally occurring allergy airway disease in non-human primates. Now, this could have to do with the hygiene hypothesis. Other issues remains to be seen. Anyway, to conclude, disease profiles of humans and chimpanzees are rather different considering how genetically similar we are. Chimpanzees, contrary to the original idea of of the NIH and health sciences are poor models of many human diseases and should not be used to model human diseases very often, if at all. Humans, conversely, are likely to be poor models of many chimpanzee diseases. So there are huge ethical issues here. Chimpanzees are sentient beings. I wouldn't do anything to a chimpanzee. I wouldn't do it to a human, and with even greater care than with humans. And back in 2005, Jim Moore, Pascal Ghani, and I wrote this ethics paper, which suggested that we conduct research on great apes following principles generally similar to those accepted for human research. And we even suggested that the researchers should volunteer to be subjects in the same studies. <laughs> Since I wrote this, I keep getting these, these, these uh, letters saying, please sign this document banning all future research on chimpanzees. And my answer is, that's a terrible idea. Would you ban all future research on humans? But unfortunately, that's what's happened for other reasons, uh, really good reasons of getting chimpanzees out of not very good facilities and avoiding invasive research. The NI just threw up its hand and has stopped all chimpanzee research, practically speaking. And the question is, will the ban on chimpanzee research actually do more harm than good to both species? And I'll add a final corollary. Chimpanzees would benefit from more ethical studies of their own diseases. And I'm hoping that we can still keep this area of research open because I think it's important both for both humans and chimpanzees and the diseases that we both get. Thank you. One out of every four deaths, basically in the US and the UK, are from heart disease. Uh, so it's basically the number one killer, not just in the industrialized world, uh, and a major source of cost, the burdening our healthcare system, but also in, uh, around the world, including in the developing world, that heart disease and its more insidious form of it, atherosclerosis, is the source of, say, every three out of ten deaths around the world today. So it's so familiar to us that the obvious question is, 
Well, is atherosclerosis really um, a universal aspect of just human aging. It's sort of an inevitable aspect. By the time you're 20, you probably already have some of the fatty streaks that will later go on to become more complicated lesions and create problems for us. Or is that not the case? And so maybe atherosclerosis is some, the process is universal, but maybe it does or does not always present clinical manifestations that will affect our morbidity and ultimately mortality. So a standard kind of story is that if we could zoom back into the past and look at uh, hunter-gatherers, that hunter-gatherers wouldn't have these types of uh, heart disease or other types of problems, and that it's modern features of our lifestyle that is making us ill, that there's a mismatch between our genetic adaptations and modern features of lifestyle. So changes in our nutrition, our diet, uh, our physical activity, our bad habits, as Barbara said, like cigarette smoking and alcohol consumption, that these are maybe what create the problem, and that hunter-gatherers would have little or no coronary heart disease. Uh, and the evidence for this is often uh, focused on some risk factors, so cholesterol, type 2 diabetes, um, low prevalence, that, that their risk factors seem to suggest uh, a healthy heart. But there's some problems here, is that we don't really know uh, that in these types of populations that heart disease is fairly absent. There could be, first of all, the numbers are fairly small. And often uh, there'd be a medical team like in the 1950s or 60s that would sweep through a village, but fairly quickly. And so uh, you might not, have, it could be that people who have heart disease die fairly quickly from it. And so unless you've spent a long time in an area, you might not actually see the real cases if the case fatality rate is quite high. And it could be that, you know, the, and those people get weeded out of the population early. And so if you looked at people over the age of 60, no one has heart disease, maybe because they died earlier on in life. But also, the assessment is fairly indirect. As I mentioned, you know, you can, it's easy to kind of take someone's blood pressure to, to measure how much cholesterol they have, to measure their BMI, but it's much harder to get a direct assessment. And of course, if certain risk factors work differently in different human populations, then it might not be a one-to-one -one relationship that the risk factors tell you about the actual underlying uh, heart disease. And one good example, from the 70s, it was kind of became established fact almost that, that, uh, that the Inuit up in the Arctic North, uh, in Alaska and Greenland in particular, that they don't have uh, atherosclerosis and they don't have heart disease and that in particularly their marine rich diet uh, and particularly omega-3s was one good reason why uh, despite a very meat-based diet that they would um, not have heart disease but it actually turns out there was some unreliable mortality statistics that some of those earlier inferences were based on and further kind of x-ray and ultrasound studies actually show the opposite that there is quite a decent amount of atherosclerosis uh, and that heart disease didn't really look that different from uh, near surrounding populations, and that stroke might even be higher. Uh, and also more recent meta-analyses show no effect of omega-3 fish oils on heart-related deaths, uh, heart attacks, and strokes. So the standard story is actually a little bit different when you look into it in more detail. And also, uh, the Horus group, which we'll see a little bit more uh, further in the talk, looked at a unique sample of 137 mummies across four world regions. So ancient Egypt, ancient Peru, the southwest of the U.S., 
uh, and the Aleutian Islands and across 4,000 years of history, and they looked at different arterial beds for evidence of calcification. So a more direct measure using CT scans, whole body CT scans of these mummies. So for example, here you've got these are both uh, two uh, Unangan women from the Aleutian Islands. Up here is a woman about 50, here a woman about 30. And you can see some evidence of calcification uh, in the aortic arch up at the top and in the carotid artery down here on the bottom. And what they found was evidence of calcification across all arterial beds, across all four populations. And so they argued that their conclusion was that we found that heart disease is a serial killer that has been stalking mankind for thousands of years. The presence of atherosclerosis in pre-modern human beings suggests that the disease is an inherent component of human aging and not characteristic of any specific diet or lifestyle. Now, the paleo diet people hated this, right, because they were basically saying, look, it's all over. It doesn't matter what you eat. We find evidence of this everywhere. Uh, but of course, all the mummies have been long dead, so it's hard to know what they actually died of and whether that atherosclerosis might have been relevant to their daily lives. Uh, now, also, uh, free riding off of Ajit's talk, uh, we now know that chimpanzees, while the number one cause of death in captives uh, is heart attacks, it's not exactly coming from the same etiology as, uh, as human heart attacks, that chimpanzees do not seem to have the same kind of atherosclerosis. The coronary artery disease is rare, uh, but the heart failure instead is through this diffuse interstitial myocardial fibrosis, uh, often triggered by arrhythmias. You can see the, the diffuse kind of uh, fibrosis in the heart tissue in chimpanzees, the kind of uh, subendothelial uh, plaques in the, in the human interior lumen, uh, that this is very different. And in captive chimpanzees, despite the fact that they have higher cholesterol levels, they're homozygous for uh, alleles in the APOE4 that are uh, risk, higher risk of atherosclerosis in humans and less physical activity. So quite remarkable difference. So now the standard kind of evolutionary story uh, brought to us by some evolutionary biologists uh, made critical foundational contributions, Medawar, um, uh, as well as uh, Haldane and, and Hamilton, that basically that the force of selection declines with age as fertility is dropping. And so the relative contributions for future generations are, are declining. And so you can have uh, mutations that exert effects late in life that might be somewhat blind to the, the effects of natural selection, especially if they have beneficial effects early in life. So what that means is that you've got deleterious effects that manifest, say, later in life, fall under the selection shadow. And it actually turns out, when you actually look at the cases, this is from uh, U.S. data, the actual incidence of heart attacks and fatal coronary heart disease, that those cases do fall into this uh, selection shadow. So one kind of knee-jerk response is, well, maybe, again, these things have always been with us, but uh, in hunter-gatherers, if you're not going to live to this kind of age range, then you're not going to see these types of ailments. And so that might be the end of story, and that our longer lives in modern society is why we see so much more of it today. 
But that doesn't really seem to be the case. If we take some of the best demographic data out there in hunter-gatherers as kind of a, a, a key, obviously living hunter-gatherers are not the same as our, our, our ancestors, but it's the closest thing we have to try to understand what life and uh, mortality might be like without all the modern amenities. And so in hunter-gatherers, where the average life expectancy at birth is in the either high 20s or low 30s, compared to what we're used to in the U.S. and other uh, first world countries, there's a dramatic difference. But if you notice, this is the ratio of the mortality in hunter-gatherers to, say, the American mortality. And it's quite high, the difference, but most of those differences are early in life. And that by the time you get to, say, age 15, the mortality differences drop from, say, 200 early in life to 14 times higher in hunter-gatherers to about age 40, seven times higher in hunter-gatherers, and by age 60, that mortality difference is only three times higher. Now, so if you live past this early period of high mortality and you survive to age 15, the modal age of adult death is actually ranges from 68 to 78 in these hunter-gatherer populations. So it's not probably the case that the absence of older people is why we don't see these types of problems presenting these kinds of populations. So I wanted to move beyond mortality and actually look at living bodies to see, well, okay, do people actually have some more direct evidence? And so since I mentioned, uh, since 1999, we've been working in central lowland Bolivia, uh, with the Chimane, so again, a horticulturalist population that share many similarities with hunter-gatherers. Their fertility is quite high. They're fairly high pathogen load. Most of their diet, if not all of their diet, is basically coming from the land, from fish, from, from their fields, and also uh, from wild game. And so taking advantage of the French government donating a 16-slice uh, CT scanner, it, it just a mere... 10 hours and several days in a canoe uh, away, uh, we brought people to the CT scanner to get a more direct measure of uh, atherosclerosis through looking at coronary uh, arterial calcification uh, based on thoracic CT scans. And what we found, so using the exact same methods for scoring as uh, in U.S. studies, when we compared Americans uh, to the Chimane, it actually turns out that, well, the Chimane, so these are here in red, there is evidence of atherosclerosis, of, of calcification, but the, lowers are much, the levels are much lower than what we see in the U.S. Now, the MESA, this is the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis. These are asymptomatic people without heart disease or diabetes that uh, are in the sample. So compared to those, the levels of, of the percentage of people with any calcification is much, much lower. Uh, and in fact, the Chimani reached a level that the Americans have that's a gap of over 20, 25 years. And so one easier way of thinking about this than this kind of obscure calcification scoring uh, is what's called the arterial age. And this is basically what uh, age, based on your, your, the CAC score you have, what's that the equivalent of someone in the MESA study? And compared to uh, what you would expect based on just the calcification score, the, the Chimani show evidence that basically estimated arterial ages that are about 20, 25 years younger than their chronological age. 
But the great thing about working with living people, if the story ended there, we might say, well, look, just like we found with the mummies, there's atherosclerosis in the chimane. But here, the clinical findings really suggest minimal manifestations of atherosclerosis. So over the past decade, we've found minimal obesity, hypertension, cigarette smoking, moderate high physical activity, uh, low uh, cholesterol levels, low, uh, your, your bad, your low density uh, lipoprotein cholesterol, low blood glucose. So all the risk factors are, are fairly minimal. Uh, and then if we actually look based on EKGs, if we look for evidence of past infarcts, um, over 1,100 EKGs we've looked at of people uh, 40 and up, um, maybe one case of an infarct looked at by our team of cardiologists, uh, and even that uh, some people, a couple of the cardiologists think is dubious, um, and also based on other evidence with EKGs and also with um, uh, ultrasound, uh, evidence of preserved systolic and diastolic function. Uh, and it's not the case that uh, the young people that have these conditions then are dying at early ages, uh, or that these people have high case fatality rates. So based on verbal autopsies, over the past 15 years, we don't see very much evidence at all. In fact, maybe one case of someone who may have died of a heart attack. So it really doesn't seem like there's evidence of mortality selection that is explaining these differences away. Now, this is in spite of the fact, you know, they have some protective factors, but they also have very high levels of inflammation. Uh, and, you know, in the past 20 years or so, it's well known that inflammation is a major risk factor. In fact, it's a fundamental to the process of what we know about atherosclerosis. And by a number of biomarkers, uh, C-reactive protein is one many of you might be familiar with because you often get it done your own, by your own clinician. They have very high levels and cumulative levels over their life course, uh, the levels that would basically associate with having heart disease uh, in, amongst ourselves. They also have low levels of uh, the high-density lipoproteins are, are good cholesterol. So a few take-home messages uh, for the larger biomedical field. Uh, first of all, it doesn't seem like the inflammation story uh, is very complete, that the, the same kind of risk factor might not exert the same types of effects everywhere. And we probably would not have known that if we didn't look uh, at populations that are, I guess, uh, as Katie brought up, looking at non-weird populations, um, and particularly populations that experience lots of infection and have very different uh, kind of lifestyles than we have. And in fact, not only do they have high levels of inflammation, but biomarkers of inflammation are either unrelated or in some ways oppositely uh, associated with uh, our measures of uh, arterial calcification and other uh, indicators of atherosclerosis. And it could be that uh, inflammation that we experience from cigarette smoking, from obesity, uh, so-called sterile inflammation, might have different effects than inflammation that is induced under the conditions more representative of the past, which would be more from infection. But also that other types of infections, particularly helminths, uh, are, these are our intestinal worms, our old friends, that we've carried with us for long, long periods of our evolutionary history, that they exert regulatory effects on the immune system and also anti-inflammatory effects that uh, might perhaps protect against the otherwise destructive effects of inflammation. And the other take home is that what we consider average you know, might not be really normal. Uh, so James O'Keefe, uh, a physician uh, back in the early 2000s, you know, argued the case 
based on uh, randomized placebo-controlled studies uh, with statins, that if you looked at the chronic exp- uh, LDL levels uh, and you looked at a whole bunch of things, this is just a decrease over time in the, the, the luminal diameter, so the interior of the, of the artery, um, but you could change the y-axis and make it you know, heart attacks and uh, other cardiac events, that when you actually looked at the, how the occurrence of these things in relation to the chronic LDL levels, it, it seemed to be a somewhat linear relationship to the point where if you draw the line, that you would expect to get almost zero events. Uh, and this, in this particular graph, it would mean basically a slowing of atherosclerosis to the point of stopping uh, at a level of about 70 or just less than 70. And so they were arguing in a series of papers that the optimal LDL should be something between 50 to 70, uh, whereas your typical recommendations, at least up until 2013, when the, uh, the statin-based uh, recommendations changed so that we're not reaching a target level, but it used to be that 100 was a level. But it actually turns out there's a decent amount of heart attacks in the region between 70 to, to 100. And this is just from the Chimane, but if we looked at other populations, it would be a similar case. The distribution of the LDL here in the Chimane compared to Americans, and it might be a little hard, sorry, for, to see the numbers, but the, the, the mode and the average there is, is about 70 for the Chimane, whereas about 85% of Americans have LDL higher than that. Uh, and that what's yellow there is in that 70 to 100 uh, region that basically many of Americans would fall into, even if they were uh, taking statins. So uh, at less than 70 is a hunter-gatherer level of, of LDL that might be more extreme, but probably very difficult for us as omnivores uh, to reach unless perhaps you're, you're taking statins. So just to summarize and conclude, you know, atherosclerosis is present, just like we observed in the mummies, but it's less pervasive than we see in the West. So certain features of cardiovascular aging may be universal. So you might see some calcifications and stiffening of the arteries. Uh, there's some you know, declines, you know, they might be delayed in systolic and diastolic function, uh, but they occur nonetheless. Yet the clinical manifestations, so whether it's heart attacks, hypertension, uh, peripheral arterial disease, strokes, that those themselves may not be universal and were likely very rare throughout human evolutionary history, uh, despite the fact that we can observe calcifications um, in these mummies. And also, I think it behooves us to revisit common risk factors, uh, that inflammation might be high in hunter-gatherer populations, but immune function might be better regulated uh, in a very different environment, particularly in a presence of a more diverse set of pathogens, and it also raises the question of what is normal. You know, what are the target levels of different biomarkers like LDL that we should be reaching? Uh, what might they have been like over the course of evolutionary history? And to take advantage of the fact, if we hadn't looked at a population like the Chimane, you know, these non-weird populations, that we can actually learn quite a bit about uh, our own health in, in say, the U.S. Um, by focusing on people that are more likely to have certain types of infections that could be cardioprotective. Uh, even a lot of our standard uh, model organisms uh, in the lab are infection-free, and so there might be some limitations of what can be gained. Uh, and also taking advantage of the fact 
well, and the, and the horror of the fact that all in, indigenous populations around the world are in different states of, of flux. And so it's a kind of quasi-natural laboratory for looking at the changes in lifestyle and environment on how that shapes increases in type 2 diabetes risk and in heart disease. Um, and so it's sort of untapped territory that very, uh, in fact, I don't know any uh, biomedically oriented folks that are, are working in these populations to, to try to learn more about the underlying etiology. And so for the future, you know, I think one thing, a take-home message is if, if, if the story was just that, look, exercise more, eat well, don't smoke, uh, we already knew. Those are your standard Framingham study kind of risk factors. Uh, and I think, you know, those do make a big difference. But also, you know, regulated immune function in the presence of certain parasites might also have some protective aspects on the heart. And that maybe in the future we might see that the hygiene hypothesis, uh, this idea that, you know, we are not exposed to the same type of of, of of critters as we would have in the past that not only helps explain autoimmune type diseases currently, but also may be extended to heart disease. Thank you very much for your time. So I will uh, discuss today uh, the relation between inflammation and uh, metabolism and metabolic homeostasis and disease susceptibility. Uh, So inflammation is uh, a protective uh, response to a variety of challenges that we may experience, including infection and injury and various types of uh, tissue stress and malfunctions and all the things that can go wrong. All of them can induce an inflammatory response that's meant to be protective. And uh, depending on the type of challenge that we experience, there's different physiological or intended purpose of the responses, such as Uh, host defense from infection, tissue repair response, or restoration of a normal state of the tissues. And what is uh, very interesting about inflammation and very clinically important is that uh, all these different pathways to inflammation can result in in a variety of pathological sequelae, including autoimmune diseases, sepsis, uh, fibrotic diseases, tumor growth, and a variety of diseases of homeostasis that are becoming more and more common in modern uh, lifestyles. To give a very, very simplified summary of inflammation, uh, of inflammatory pathway, when inducers of inflammation, such as pathogens or tissue damage, are encountered, uh, cells in our body, such as macrophages and epithelial cells and so on, detect this inducers and produce various inflammatory mediators, including cytokines that uh, some of them were mentioned already. And what these mediators do, they act on practically every uh, tissue in the body and they change some functional characteristics that intend to uh, either cause elimination of whatever caused inflammation or adaptation to the presence of these conditions. And why inflammation is so broadly associated with diseases, uh, uh, very um, symbolically, it could be uh, summarized here. So for every trait, including uh, defense traits, uh, there are are benefits and costs. For defenses, the costs are particularly pronounced. And the traits would be evolutionarily stable if if the benefits uh, are higher than the costs. And anything in this a uh, green part of the triangle would be, therefore, potentially uh, evolutionary stable, and everything here would be unstable. 
And the problem is that um, in the case of uh, traits that have very, can provide very high benefits such as uh, survival, the acceptable cost can also be very high. And that uh, leads to this type of picture where um, the part of this uh, upper triangle that's on the right side where benefit can still outweigh the cost, but in terms of the absolute value of the cost, this would be already, from the patient perspective at least, and the doctor's perspective, this would be already in the disease zone. This would be uh, conditions that we would experience as something that is definitely not well-being, and uh, doctors would diagnose as being various types of pathological or disease conditions, even though they are still um, provide more benefit than the cost. And what we are interested in is in, this, uh, in the biology of this upper right uh, corner, where the high benefits associated with very high costs and where we basically at the, on the edge of the uh, chaos or transition into the uh, pathological states that can be um, uh, potentially lethal. And uh, this type of biology uh, deals with uh, not just common conditions uh, like uh, mild infections or mild uh, anomalies, but it has to do with uh, essentially biology of survival. What, what are the kinds of mechanisms that are employed uh, by our system, uh, by our organism, um, in order to survive critical conditions, the ones that are just one step away from death. And this is just uh, in a very schematic way summarized here. So if we consider this type of a disease tree, there are many conditions that we, we can are one step away from health. These are various common mild illnesses. Uh, these are conditions that make you uh, go to see your primary care physician. If there are complications of these conditions, you get referred to some internal medicine specialist. These are more complex diseases. Uh, but you can still recover and go back to health. And in severe cases, you can get into this critical illness state when you get into uh, ICU. And you still can recover from here. And, and in this critical illness state, which is conditions like sepsis, pneumonia, heart attack, brain damage, and so forth, uh, in these conditions, uh, you are one step away from these three uh, proximal uh, mechanisms that lead directly to death. And these are points of no return, which is respiratory failure, cardiovascular failure, or damage to the brain areas that control respiration and uh, cardiovascular function. So we're interested in what happens here, what kind of mechanisms may be evolved to prevent this transition into this point of no return. The case I will discuss today has to do with this very um, enigmatic and uh, very interesting and very familiar to everyone a uh, set of uh, conditions known as sickness behaviors. This is something everybody in this room experienced when you have flu or any other type of severe uh, infection or other types of acute illness. We all experience this uh, set of conditions uh, such as loss of appetite, social withdrawal, fatigue, uh, slippiness, and so on and so forth. So these are, these are all stereotypic conditions that are associated with acute illness, most commonly with acute infections. So flu symptoms would all be in that category. And uh, the biology of sickness behavior has not been uh, really well understood, although there were early studies that uh, demonstrated that sickness behavior is, is not just a consequence of system being destroyed by a pathogen, but rather these are motivated behaviors. In other words, they are intended by the organism for some reason. 
And there's been many speculations that whether various aspects of sickness behavior perhaps help the immune system to fight the infection, or maybe there is some other way that they may contribute to dealing with uh, acute uh, illness. And uh, so we were interested in investigating uh, aspects of acute illness, including loss of appetite and uh, uh, change in sleeping patterns, and how they may contribute to survival, um, to survival of the acute illness. So there are two ways that we can uh, survive an infection, uh, or any other challenge for that matter. Uh, we can either resist it. So in the case of infection, normally we would be in this state where we are healthy, and there is a low or, neg or uh, a negligible pathogen load. And uh, as we get infected and pathogen uh, expand, we can become ill, as indicated by this position. And from here, we can either go back to health by getting rid of pathogen, which is the role of the immune system, and this is uh, referred to as a resistance to disease, or we can uh, adapt to the presence of the pathogen uh, and go back to the healthy state despite uh, microbial load. And this would be referred to uh, increased tolerance to infection or tolerance to damage. There are two, two ways that pathogens cause damage. One is directly through tissue destruction, through toxins, virulence factors, and so forth. And the second, uh, more common way that pathogens, uh, infections cause illness is uh, due to uh, damage by the inflammation caused by infection. And so we were interested in figuring out whether sickness behaviors provide benefit, first of all. Secondly, whether they provide benefit because they promote uh, immune function and resistance to infection, or whether they provide uh, benefit by promoting tissue protection and tolerance to inflammatory damage or pathogen-induced damage. So uh, just like in humans, in mice, uh, or in any animals that have been studied, uh, all the way back to insects, uh, when they are ill uh, uh, with uh, acute infection, they stop eating. This is food consumption in mice after they received uh, a dose of listeria infection. This is a common food poisoning type of infection. They stop eating and until they start clearing infection, and they start recovering, and then they start eating again. But there is a very profound uh, anorexia associated with infection, as you can see here. So uh, some studies uh, done over 40 years ago actually found that in the same model of listeria infection, if mice are force-fed, then mortality increases. And this is what we reproduce here. So this is uh, showing survival of mice that are given LD50 dose of listeria, dose that kills half of mice. And this is what's shown here. And if they're force-fed, then all of them die. And they're fed just 20% uh, of daily caloric intake. So they're not really stuffed with food. They're just given a little bit of food, and that kills them. And the food we use is actually uh, the same food that's used in ICU units. And then we asked what component of food kills. And uh, so uh, we gave them separately proteins, uh, uh, fat, and sugar. And turns out that sugar alone, or glucose alone, was sufficient to kill them, whether it was given orally or uh, intraperitoneally. So just giving them a small dose of sugar, only 2% of normal daily caloric intake of glucose, was sufficient to kill 100% of mice. And conversely, if we gave them glucose inhibitor called 2-DG, 2-deoxyglucose, 
It's a modified form of glucose that cannot be metabolized, so it blocks glucose utilization, then 100% of mice would survive. And importantly, this was not because the immune system was affected uh, in its ability to, treat, to get rid of the pathogen, and it's not because there was higher dose of uh, higher magnitude of inflammation, because these were not different between mice giving glucose or not, as you can see here. So this indicated that mice survived or died from this manipulation because of increase, because of the effect on tissue protection, not on the immune function itself. So then we asked what would happen in a more severe condition like sepsis. Uh, sepsis is the, the uh, condition when infection becomes systemic, when it gets into blood. In this case, it's a bacterial sepsis that's mimicked by giving mice this component, uh, endotoxin or LPS. Uh, and as you can see here, if mice given LPS or septic mice, if they're given food, they die compared to control where they're just giving saline solution. And importantly, if they're just given sugar, then they all that drop dead. But most excitingly, if they're just giving this simple drug that blocks glucose utilization, then 100% of them can be rescued from sepsis. And sepsis is a, is a really terrible, intractable condition that is a very, still a very common cause of death in ICUs. So again, the mortality or protection from death in these manipulations was not dependent on the degree of inflammation, as shown here with example of one of a uh, couple of inf uh, inflammatory mediators. And it again indicating that it was due to uh, increased tissue protection from uh, damage caused by severe inflammation that is associated with sepsis. Then we asked what would happen in a different type of infection. So, so far, it showed you bacterial infection and bacterial sepsis. And now we ask what would happen in influenza virus infection. So, when mice are infected with flu virus, again, they undergo this period of anorexia when they stop eating until they start recovering. And if they're force-fed, to our great surprise, they actually survive better. So, this is uh, now giving uh, almost lethal dose of flu infection, most mice die, but when they are giving that uh, food, uh, most of them survived. And also, if they are giving glucose, that also provided partial protection, and if they are given 2-DG, glucose inhibitor, then all of them dropped dead. So it was exact opposite to what happened in bacterial infection and bacterial sepsis. And again, the effect of glucose uh, was not due to its impact on inflammatory response. So in, in viral infections, it's a different type of inflammatory response, which is dominated by uh, interferons shown here. They're the same. And the dose uh, burden of the virus in the lungs was also the same, was not different. Again, suggesting the effects are due to impact on tolerance to tissue damage. And the data that I'm not going to show, but I summarize here, uh, what we found is that death from um, viral inflammation was associated with decline in vital functions, like respiration, blood pressure, and so on, suggesting that there was a failure in autonomic control centers in the brainstem. And if mice are given food or glucose, then these declines in autonomic functions could be rescued. If they're given 2DG, they're enhanced.
In contrast, death from bacterial sepsis was associated with neuronal damage in the midbrain area, and, uh, and it was also the death was immediately preceded by convulsions. And, both of, and these were blocked by 2DG, and they were enhanced by glucose. So we did PET scan analysis and found that glucose utilization under conditions of bacterial inflammation versus viral inflammation was very different, and it segregated exactly to these two brain areas, such that in viral inflammation, it was primarily in brainstem, uh, and in bacterial inflammation, it was in midbrain area. So, and in, in the, the delivery, of, increased delivery of glucose to these areas uh, related to the impact of glucose or glucose inhibitors on the damage to these areas. And then we asked what is the mechanism of damage and what's happening there. So I will just summarize that part of the study. Uh, what we found was that in the case of viral inflammation, what happens with cells that are infected with the virus, one of the things that happens, uh, there is a particular type of cellular stress response known as unfolded protein response that has two branches. One branch tries to adapt to this stress condition and to resolve it, and if that fails, the second branch would kill the cells as a second option. And this death from this response is mediated by this particular gene called CHOP. It's a transcription factor. So then we asked whether, uh, and what is known is that uh, glucose deprivation can exacerbate in unfolded protein response, the stress response pathway. And so we hypothesized that that brainstem area, the neurons in the, in the brainstem, for reasons that remain uh, mysterious, uh, underwent this excessive unfolded protein response stress that was ameliorated by glucose and exacerbated by 2DG. And then we asked whether this pathway of cell death or neuronal damage mediated by this gene is involved. And for that, we asked whether mice that have a mutation in this gene, whether they would be rescued from the effect of uh, such inflammatory manipulation. And indeed, what we found, if we just look at this blue line, these are mice that, are, that have um, infection, uh, uh, that have viral inflammation, and they're given 2DG, they all die. And if they don't have that gene chopped, then they all survive. And so the mechanism here is related to blockade of this pathway for neuronal dysfunction. And finally, in the case of uh, sepsis or bacterial inflammation, uh, fasting metabolism that protected them from death uh, was related to the switch from uh, normal fat metabolism to fasted metabolism, which is uh, there is a switch to fuels from glucose to ketones. And that switch was necessary for mice to survive sepsis. And this is shown here that giving glucose blocked transition to uh, fasting metabolism and deletion of the gene that is responsible for ketone uh, production uh, made mice susceptible to uh, sepsis. And what, as I mentioned, immediately before death, mice had convulsion in sepsis. So what we did in this final set of experiments, if we gave the mice anti-epileptic drug called valporic acid, uh, then we could rescue them from death even uh, when they're given glucose. And so that indicated that the reason that that worked is because valporic acid, unlike this other drug shown here, which is Keppra, which is also anti-convulsion drug, 
Valporic acid, one of its mechanisms is related to the effect, uh, to the same effect uh, that ketones have on a particular class of enzymes in the cell. So I will summarize it here, that there are two different pathways to death, and fasting metabolism is protective in one case and detrimental in the other case. And uh, the final the implication for human uh, treatment in ICU is that all clinical trials done so far with nutrient manipulation in ICU units have been done on patients that have not been separated on, based on cause of sepsis, bacterial versus viral. And, and the results of these studies were mixed. And we think that it's because they were not separated and they basically canceled each other out. So uh, now we are planning to conduct a clinical trial where we'll separate them uh, based on cause of sepsis. And uh, so this is the summary. And finally, uh, this work was done by three very talented scientists in the lab, uh, Harding uh, Luan, uh, Sarah Huin, and Andrew Wong. And we had help uh, from other colleagues at Yale. And thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.